0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks tonight on this cold evening. We'll warm ourselves with the Dharma. And uh, maybe you know, some of you have been at it for a long time. It sounds a little funny to say it, but the Dharma will warm us up, right, because you know, it kind of does two things, these teachings, and uh, those of you who've been practicing for a while know it's not necessarily appropriate to say that we're Buddhists practicing Buddhism, because the Buddha paid attention to what it was to have a body and a mind, and then he articulated that experience, like what he'd come to understand. So we're really practicing dharma. We're practicing opening to the way that it is. That's what dharma means, seeing things as they are. So in a way, it's human common sense that requires like a cultivated sensitivity. We have to stabilize the heart, the mind, less distraction, less superficiality, so that the mind, the sensitivity of the mind, the knowing mind, can more directly, simply connect with the way it is. And uh, it's, it's sort of paradoxical when we do take the time to connect with the way that it is. It's deeply challenging because... It doesn't fit our idea of how it is, but it's also deeply satisfying, protecting, grounding, liberating. It really resolves the problem, especially the existential problems. It doesn't resolve racism or economic injustice or the aging body or not getting along with our pets or partners or whatever, but it somehow creates the capacity to be with this imperfect world, to be with the suffering in the world, and to find creative, nimble ways to be in the world, to be who we are with our particular responsibilities and duties. So I'm going to ask Mary Beth, uh, the, one of our longtime leaders and volunteers, who sends out the weekly email, and some of you know Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager, to put this article—one um, of my favorite chapters in one of my favorite Dharma books—and ironically, in this particular chapter, the author is talking about her favorite book. <laughs> but uh, this is uh, Joko Beck, Charlotte Joko Beck. She's a well-known sort of um, matriarch of Western dharma. She studied with a number of very well-known Japanese Zen teachers. Back in the day she died, maybe five years ago. She was well into her 90s, so she's been around for a while. And she wrote this book, uh, Everyday Zen. What is it called exactly? Nothing Special, Living Zen. And I think her other book is Everyday Zen. And the chapter is entitled The Icy Couch, or we could call this talk, this subject really coming inspired by this chapter by Joko Beck or Charlotte Joko Beck as uh, Endless Disappointment as our teacher. You know, like a gateway to liberation. We think of all the little and big disappointments in life as a problem. That's what we'd call a normal relationship to disappointment, like it's a problem that it's cold, or it's a problem that my body's aging, or it's a problem. I was flying back from Los Angeles this morning, and uh, and there were two babies. One was very cute, but one baby... (laughs) I mean, just that—that deep kind of angst that babies can get. It nothing, nothing helped. And then, and then at the last ten minutes, that baby quieted down, and the very happy baby just lost it. <laughs> it. It was, it was getting a little touch and go because people were getting really, you know, it's just like people start to lose it in that confined space, and it started. Uh, at one point, <laughs> a woman asked the mother of this child, the mother and fa- apparently it was the mother and father with the child, um, said to her, said to the mother, "I'd be happy to walk your child up and down, carry your child up and down the, the aisle, and maybe it will quiet down." And the mother was really offended. And then the father took the child and sort of walked, and the, the two of them, I thought it was going to like get really bad, but they were <laughs> The mother said to this other woman who had spoke up, you know, babies sometimes, you know, get upset. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't catch the whole conversation, but the, the woman who was sitting next to Nguyen and me was saying that uh, it's inappropriate, you know. Basically judging her mothering and blaming her for her crying baby. And you can imagine how the mother felt. And so they went back and forth for <laughs> a while, and I was really concerned it might get bad. But... Like this is just one of the relatively small disappointments. And i actually was relatively okay with the screaming, but the hostility between the two people, that was unfortunate, you know. And uh yeah, and it really it shows uh the, the basic point of this chapter, the icy couch, right? Is that we do Whatever we have to, to avoid resting on the icy couch, which just happens to be our life. So we, we sort of commit to a lifetime of being in our imagination, like that person's a bad mother, or that person is sticking their nose in my business, you know, or whatever. One person talks about this as sort of the films, the dramas that we inhabit, the bubbles we inhabit as a way of avoiding the icy couch of our life, like what it actually feels like to be a human being. And this is what I meant in the guided meditation about this, learning to inhabit the body. Because the body is our doorway into the present moment. For a lot of us at least. Because the body's not conceptual. Like the body can be, right? (laughs) A concept like we can. And even now when I say the body, you might picture it. But that's just seeing and mental image. Or you might have an idea of your body. But what I mean about the body is what it feels like right here. That connection, that intimacy, that willingness to feel what's here be felt. And of course, that's very alive. It's not a thing, the feeling, right? It's moment by moment, the feeling is unfolding, evolving, It doesn't stay constant, whatever that bodily experience is. But it's a way to, I think we could say, be real, or as Joko Beck says, feel, learn to rest on the icy couch. She talks about it in this chapter that as unpleasant, especially initially, as it is on the icy couch, we find the more we hang out there that it's molded perfectly, (laughs) right? It's like a perfect fit, the icy couch. And of course, where is the icy couch? It's right here. Like when my mind isn't, the thinking mind, or the knowing mind rather, isn't identified with the meaning that our thinking mind constructs when we're willing to not defend ourselves in any way. And there are any number, probably, probably infinite numbers of ways to avoid resting on the icy couch of our life. This, the doorway being the experience of embodiment, being with the body in an undefended, unconstructed way, meaning you're you're not telling yourself something about the experience. And even if it doesn't seem like there's much there in the experience of the body, it's like we're not second guessing it. So whatever it is, it's that dropping in. Because it's it's not so much about the body being a special place or the icy couch being special, it's about the non-distraction, the non-avoidance, the not running away from our life. And of course, the more we avoid that place, the more we're laying down layers of yuckiness, right? which just makes it harder to drop in. This is the great tragedy, that we, yeah, we basically created this predicament of not wanting to be real because of not wanting to be real. Like we've, we've created the unpleasantness of being undefended, being open, being in the moment, being in the body. We've made it at least initially a horror you know, to be avoided at all costs because we've been avoiding it. So this is, uh, you know, it's really an essential practice to being a human being. Like there's, there's no real kindness, there's no real perspective, no real capacity to understand another person. And really no real capacity to be generous and to contribute unless we've begun this work of dropping into our life. Otherwise, all of our attempts to help others or to be a good human being or whatever, be a parent, be a lover, it's part of our way of avoiding being real. So you could say it's neurotic. Or it's counterproductive we use our relationships I'm sure you've seen this I have in my own life where we see we catch ourselves in moments at least hopefully we catch ourselves in a relationship where we sense that we're using the relationship using the interaction to avoid something to run from something to hide I need this because I don't know how to be real. I don't know how to settle into my life. I don't know how to be in the body. So I'm gonna call this person, fall in love over here, get obsessive about this, fill my life up with some activity or some concern. And again, it's not so much that those activities or concerns are inherently bad or good, but running from our life doesn't help anybody. This sort of continuing this inability just to rest. And that's what we do in our formal sitting practice. And it's easy to kind of you know, and, and appropriate in some ways to be suspicious at least of anybody who is trying to sell you something like meditation is good. I, I had this wonderful healer that I see once a month. Uh, she's a chiropractor, but she does other modalities a lot. Doesn't really crack bones so much. But anyway, she was telling me about these bio beds. I guess she was visiting her brother who married a woman from Korea. I guess they've been around for a long, long time, a kind of Korean um, natural healing modalities, these beds that have stones in them and are heated. Probably in the olden days, they they weren't heated by some electricity, but they had some way of heating them, and they were considered to be sort of really good for your health. I got interested. Like, oh, I'm going to be saved. I need one of these biobeds. <laughs> Probably a certain percentage of you. Tonight when you get home, well, Google biobeds. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for the next savior, you know, whatever it will be. <laughs> Looking at the ocean and, you know, I was up in a really pretty place in uh, north of L.A. doing a memorial service for an old friend who died. That's one of the early teachers of Common Ground. I think we still have Paul's photograph up on the Compassion Altar in the corner. You can check him out. He's been out in California for about 12 years now, so most of you probably haven't met him. But in the early years of Common Ground in the 90s, he taught with me and others here at the center. Anyway, uh, you know, just it's so beautiful. And it was like 72 degrees and sunny. and And they had a lot of rain evidently the week or so before we were there so you know that the hills were unusually green you know in the northern hills about uh, north of LA and you could think as I certainly arose in my mind like this is the ticket you know <laughs> living in a place like this you know just the thought of the temperature in the uh, in here <laughs> You know, and just flying over and seeing the flat land and the snow and the frozen lakes. It's like, this isn't conducive to awakening. (laughs) (laughs) And it's endless, like, because this is what propels these films, these dramas, the endless proliferation. We're, We're actually, on the surface, we think we're trying to take care of ourselves whether we're obsessing about a relationship or a new biobed or whatever it might be. I mean, there's really an infinite ways that we do it because we get bored with whatever drama we're in, you know, 10, 15 minutes. We're bored and we pick up another drama, like if only politics were completely transformed or if only, or if only, right? So it just keeps moving. And each time we don't sense it, because we're just not, the awareness isn't stable enough. But each time we, the mind, invests in that drama, in that bubble, in that proliferation, we're laying down another layer of ice, another layer of contraction, energetically, right here. The body is the sort of helpless victim of the neurotic mind. So when we get an instruction to get to know the icy couch, to open to things as they are, to use you know, that doorway into the present moment by feeling the body as it actually is, we're going to meet the karmic fruit of everything our mind has been doing the last number of decades we've been around. right? So all the worries, all the obsessions, all the lustful thoughts, all the you know, hopeful thoughts, all the angry thoughts, they leave an impression somewhere, right? Well, the somewhere is always body-mind, and the mind is kind of ephemeral, but the body, in a way, receives the karma. We feel it energetically. All the knots, all the numbness, the energetic flatness, the aches, the contraction. And let alone just the inability to really land. Like it's so well defended, like not coming back. It's seen as like, oh, you don't want to go there. You don't want to open that door. You don't really want to be in your body. You ever notice? I mean, it's like even when we go to bed at night, a lot of us, a lot of the time, it's like we need to be distracted until we fall asleep. The last thing we want is those moments where we're still awake but the mind isn't occupied with anything, right? Thinking about this or imagining that and we're just there with the experience of the body lying there and whatever is sort of reverberating or left over or felt there in the body. So uh, one way to think about Dharma practice, which I'm calling, you know, common sense that the Buddha taught and many other people have taught, is like learning to come home to the present moment, through the doorway of embodiment, the experience, the actual experience of sensation, not the thought, not a mental picture of the body, but just the actual experience. And notice how, some of you, maybe all of us to some degree, are thinking, Oh, I do that. that, and nothing happens. You know, it's like, that hasn't been transforming. But you see the kind of, like, what the understanding, like, whatever the rejection might be, like, So what? Or, I tried that, it hasn't fixed my life. But you see what the logic of that is that somehow this you know physical entity that we call the body the sort of life of the body which is really the only life we have right where the mind whatever it is is tethered to this body it's integrated with this body here with this body this is our life so it's not that this is so special but that disconnecting from it, rejecting it or whatever the relationship might be, is profoundly um, stressful and not helping. So the practice, like when we sit down, that's a good thing to remind yourself of when you're you know, putting aside your 30 minutes or whatever time you have most days of the week. It's really about like being like the practice. Tell yourself, okay, I've got this time. I'm a busy person, but I'm going to practice being real. I'm not going to practice at this time being in my thoughts about things. Now, there are times we need to think about things, like figure things out using the thinking mind plan things out using the thinking mind. So the Buddha or, I don't know, any wise person that would somehow say, oh, don't do that. But just because that can be useful to think things through or to talk things through with a good friend or a therapist or whatever, that doesn't mean that putting everything down isn't profoundly useful so to distinguish like because a lot of people end up using their meditation time to think things through, like sort of uh, journaling you know some people journal and just to kind of get clear about some issue in your life, okay if I do this or if I say this to this person, or why does that keep happening to me so that that kind of um, more careful thought when we're have some space can be very therapeutic but when you see yourself doing that in a meditation period realize that's happening that's being known those thoughts come and go so we're not investing in that activity we're just seeing it as an activity and we're realizing And the body's like this. Breathing in is like this. We're coming back to the icy couch. The unadorned, moment-to-moment reality of the body sitting. And especially the more subtle, energetic quality of the body. But just use the obvious, more surface level of sensation initially. Like fill your sits bones on the chair, on the cushion or feel you know the spine or feel the hands in the lap but once you connect or feel the movement of the breath coming in the movement of the breath going out but once you feel safe enough with whatever you know you can connect with in the body then just let it naturally broaden out to be all inclusive of the body And especially the more subtle underlying feeling tone in the body. Oh, what's the feeling here in the body? Can this be okay? And you can even, if you find it useful, you can use that image, that phrase of the icy couch. Like to, instead of seeing whatever makes the simplicity of being with the body hard to sustain, See if you can befriend that. Like, you know, the, I was saying, you know, as if it's perfectly molded, I think Joko Beck says in this chapter. And I'm going to ask Mary Beth and Gabe to have this article out in the weekly email and up on the website so you can read it. So we have a digital copy of the chapter that people can read. It's just a few pages. I'd encourage you to read through it. So she uses this, like, how it's perfectly molded. But what that experience really is, is somehow it it may be exactly what we don't want to feel, that present moment experience of the body. But there's some intuition that it's exactly the only way it can be, the only way it should be, whatever that feeling is. It's like... It's not a mistake that it feels this way. That my life is like this now. That the moment is like this now. And there's something deeply healing and liberating. Not so much about the yucky feeling on the icy couch. But there's something profoundly liberating about not running from our life. Not expending Any psychic energy, any mental energy to run, to hide, to fix. We actually mostly don't know that experience of not struggling with life. So when we have a moment of embodiment, absence of any aspect of the mind resisting or struggling... It's almost like we enter a different reality. So, you know, in different spiritual traditions, they always, you always hear this sort of mystical language, religious language, sacred language around these kinds of spiritual insights. But it's, it's really just that full and complete presence, absent struggle, absent, Resistance, denial. It's just so unfamiliar. We've the mind is so invested in control, which is really understandable because on this more surface level, we're just an animal trying to survive, a social animal trying to fit in. One of the people at the the memorial service that I led afterward. Um, Oh, my friend who died, his doctor has written a couple books um, really interesting guy, and so we were talking and yeah, and one of the things we were talking about is you know we've lived sort of the way we're living now as human beings for maybe ten to fifteen thousand years, but I think it's like a hundred million years we lived as hunter gatherers, you know so in terms of the genetic conditioning through evolution, it's really about being hunter-gatherers. And what's the deal about being a hunter-gatherer? Well, you're totally trusting your group of whatever, 20 people, some young, some older, right? Your clan, your group, totally dependent. And if they kicked you out, you kind of were done for. So it's different now, you know, you get kicked out of your family, you you land somewhere else in, in this sort of society. So we have this deep fear of not belonging. And so every time that gets triggered, that you know, rejection, it leaves a deep imprint, and it happens all the time that, But it doesn't make sense on the surface. But whenever we feel like we don't fit in, you know what it feels like when we, you know, just something silly like we've got some food on our face. And then we realize it. And how many people have seen us, you know, and what do they think? <laughs> I noticed in the service uh, yesterday, I had a new pair of pants. I figured well, i got to dress the part. So I bought a new pair of pants that looked a little um, more dressy. And uh, as I was sitting there, I noticed there's a little thread there, so I pulled it. <laughs> and as I did that, the whole hem came out. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept tucking it back in, and it would fall out. And there were other problems too. <laughs> they were a little. The, the pants were a little big. But it just that—that that simple, you know, terror of not fitting in, not you know, what do people think and. And then when we come back to the body, it's like if we're willing to land on that icy couch, we're kind of healing not only from every embarrassing thing we've done, but we're also healing from any fear we have now of rejection, embarrassment, shame. Like really getting comfortable there in the moment. This is why it's so liberating. You know, people talk about it like, uh, you know, almost like a superpower. You're a superhuman. Nothing can touch you. It, but it, the reason nothing can touch you when we're in that place is because being in that place means we've included every possibility. I know it sounds a little funny to say it that way. Because we've really done all that stupid stuff already. And it's all, in a way, here when we feel into that space of the present moment on the icy couch. We're, in a way, we're saying yes to all of the shameful, all the embarrassing, all the senses of not being good enough. We're kind of like, oh yeah, that's what that feels like. All the sort of fear of death and it's all being included so what could life or anybody or anything throw at us that would disturb us or cause the heart to lose its balance? The Buddha uses an image in one of his talks or maybe in a couple of his talks about um, how some things, you know, are very unstable, easily knocked over. But a mind that's really grounded in the present moment, in this place of wisdom and love, not easily knocked over. Right? That, that's actually a kind of energetic or visceral experience when we're in that place of embodiment, comfortable on the icy couch. And even though I said icy couch, I kind of like that phrase, and I started by calling it like endless disappointment as our teacher. Remember... That's just the initial flavor. But what really starts to dominate the heart is the great relief, the great release of not having to run anymore, to not have to hide anymore, to not be afraid anymore, to not need anything. Not afraid of what comes our way, but not burdened by need or longing. Right? There's a wholeness in that space. So it's, a, it's paradoxical. But I think it's useful to understand that as we're doing this practice of just, you know, first just realizing how much we're thinking. And a lot of the ways we do that, as I mentioned in the guided sit, is just naming that. Oh, yeah, it's thinking. Just that simple phrase in your mind. Oh, yeah. The mind's thinking. Thinking is being known. Feels like this. It's just these thoughts being known. So we're normalizing that that aspect of the mind. That's what it does. It thinks. That ongoing film, that ongoing narration, dialogue, whatever it is. But now we're knowing it. We're knowing it. Which means we're less intoxicated by the thoughts and the content or the meaning that the thoughts construct, in a way, being able to name it or notice it, so you can notice it without naming it, but whether you're naming it with actual words in your mind or just noticing the thinking as a present moment phenomena, it sort of gives the mind some immunity from being seduced by the thoughts, lost in thought. Right? And then, in particular, if you can also notice the sort of underlying feeling associated with the thoughts. Oh, yeah, it's just this feeling. Because a lot of times, you know, for people, a lot of you who've been practicing for a while, you'll get pretty good at dropping into the body, but the feeling will cause the mind to go right back the stories, to the drama, to the thinking about this and that, or imagining or picturing this or that. So to intentionally, consciously, with wisdom, willingly feel what you're feeling so that the feeling doesn't sneak up and trigger the mind back into the content, lost in thought again. Well, what's the feeling here? Right. This is where we're starting to come into the energetic quality of embodiment, the visceral quality. Oh, yeah. This churning urn. <laughs> there's a great line from James Taylor's song, Churning Urn of Burning Funk. What was that song called? Mudslide Slim? Is that what that is? Anybody know? Anyway, it's a line from his son, The Churning Urn of Burning Funk. So there's this sort of, what we're calling the icy couch or the underlying feeling. So it isn't like, it may initially appear to be static, but that's just its initial appearance. What really makes it so hard to rest on is that it's alive. It's alive in the sense of becoming, the more we relax, the more it becomes exactly what we don't want to feel. That's, that's so useful to know that, right? And the one sort of distinction is when you get to the place in your practice where you know when you're in this more subtle space to follow the thread of going exactly where you don't want to go. Then you know that you have this real uh, dharma instinct, spiritual instinct. You go where you don't want to go. Because the problem, the cause, the root cause of human suffering is the unwillingness to see or feel what we don't want to see and feel. So the way out of that cause of suffering is the willingness to go where we don't want to go. And it will be different for each of us. Some might be this desert of numbness, nothing's happening. Others, it might be quite hot, quite like, you know, sparks, like, oh, this is too much, feels overwhelming, like it's going to kill you. Really, it literally will feel like if I open, if I rest here, if I turn toward this, it will swallow me up or burn me up. Or Or there may be a lot of energy, or might feel suffocating, like you're going to get buried in styrofoam or... It will have the feeling that you don't want to feel. It will have the quality that you don't want to be with. So the, the practice is like, oh, well, this is interesting. Right, that curiosity. Because the quality will be like, uh, it, it will have, you won't see this out loud in your mind, consciously in your mind, But it will will be, if you could put words to it, I know this, and I'm supposed to run. And I'm certain about that. Run from this. Don't go there. And so the the spiritual wisdom is, that's just a habit. That's just a voice of a habit. And that habit was trying to protect us, but it ended up causing untold problems. You know, basically, the habit was, life is scary, run from it. Or even worse, you know, because it, what it turns out to be is, life is scary, do this. Life is uncertain, do this. You're not in control, Mark, do this. So we get really good at doing this. We get really tight and contracted in so many little and big ways. It's like the one move we have, you know, the or this doctor, he wrote this, he co-wrote this book. uh, You know the guy who wrote the inner, what was it called? The Inner Book of Tennis? What was it? Inner Game of Tennis, Tennis, yeah. And he's written a couple others, Timothy something. And then he wrote it with uh, the same author, The Inner Book of Stress, um, this doctor that I was speaking to yesterday. And we were... He was talking, he's writing this new book, he's kind of a retired doctor, and he was saying how uh, he's got these principles he's learned just from being a doctor and a lot, around a lot of suffering over the, the de- decades. And, uh, you know, he was talking, we all know about the fight or flight, but uh, he says the, the response to stress, you know, there's also follow is one of the reactions to stress. Like become a fundamentalist, look for a leader to follow, some fundamentalist ideology to follow when we're stressed, when fear has been prompted, right? So we fight, we, it's a fight or flight, we run, right? But we also follow. And there was another F, too, I forget. Freeze, that's the fourth, yeah. So I didn't realize. So is this kind of a common thing, these four? yeah but so maybe I'm that was his of end Bob of the talks a lot about the, freeze. the freeze yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so fight, run, freeze, follow, right, so they're in a way they're they come out of a sense of certainty, like running is a certain like i gotta run, you know I've gotta freeze up, and I've gotta follow, I need somebody who knows the truth, so uh, So these stress responses, we're going to feel them as we turn toward the present moment, right? Because we're going to be opening to what we don't want to open to. So we're going to feel these very deeply entrenched patterns. And we don't need to pathologize it or get tight about them. A better attitude is, well, of course, this is hard work. This is not easy. If it was easy, we'd just be around a lot of enlightened beings, You know, but what's actually easy is just to keep doing what we've always done, which is as human beings, we keep bumping in in little and big ways to stress. We do something embarrassing or something bigger happens. We get cancer or we have a breakup or financial insecurity or whatever it might be. And we do one of those four things, fight, flight, freeze, follow, you know, get involved in some cultish activity, become a progre- progressive cult, cultish person or a you know, conservative cultish person or whatever it might be. Thinking that, yeah, if we win, then that will be it. Meditation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, spirituality is, any kind of fundamentalist thing in spirituality is counterproductive, of course. And you can turn anything. I mean, we see it, too, here. Like, the way it manifests in sort of the common ground crowd or the insight meditation crowd is thinking just one more retreat will do it. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to get myself on another retreat. Yeah. And then then you'll see, uh, we see it all the time here, is then people realize finally, maybe 10 years in and lots of retreats in, and they realize... Retreats aren't going to do it. And they think not doing retreats is going to do it. But that's not going to do it either. Avoiding retreats, avoiding your daily sit or coming to a place like common ground or studying in whatever way makes sense. I mean, there's one thing that works. There was uh, right at the time of the Buddha's death, you know, he was dying and uh, And somebody shows up at the scene, you know, and the senior disciples of the Buddha are sort of surrounding the Buddha and the people are, you know, having a hard time because their beloved teacher is on his way out of his body. And uh, somebody shows up on the scene, new, been looking for the Buddha, has a couple questions, keeps asking, and I think it was Ananda saying, this is not the time to talk to the Buddha. (laughs) Somehow the Buddha overhears this and says, and nodded. let him in I mean, not in. He, they were outside, but let him over, bring him over. I, I don't think his question's going to take much time. And the person basically asks something like, "You know, I, a lot of people I've, I've met with a lot of teachers. They all say they know the truth. You also say you know, you know the truth or the way to practice. It's a little confusing. Can you help me out?" And the, the Buddha says, you know, there's only one way, right? Anybody who says that way, speaking the truth, anybody who doesn't, it's not. Now, that sounds a little fundamentalist, right? But this is what I meant at the beginning where I was talking about Dharma. I forget if he was talking about it in terms of the Four Noble Truths or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, two of the ways the Buddha talk, talks about the Dharma, the way it is. But basically, the way it is is Human suffering arises from not being connected with the way it is. It's the not understanding suffering that is the cause of suffering. It's the not understanding what we're doing that keeps us doing what we're doing that causes suffering. Right? And any path that's about seeing the way that it is, that's what dharma means, waking up, seeing things as they are, they're telling the truth. Anybody who doesn't promote that doesn't talk about cultivating a heart and mind that can see things as they actually are. not It's never conceptual. It's not about an idea that you have to hear and then believe in. Right? The idea, like the concept is, hey, you have to be mindfully aware and you have to develop enough continuity of that present moment awareness in order to undermine your unconscious addiction to your ideas of things. Right? Because the problem is our mind is addicted or dependent on ideas that don't align with the way it is. Like the idea of being separate from everything. That's a very sticky, pervasive idea that we, the mind, is dependent, identified with. And it, doesn't, it won't help to sort of believe that we're all one. There's a lot, especially in the New Age circles, of just like believing that we're all one. But it doesn't make us not neurotic. It's just, it, it's, in a funny way, it's even a stinkier kind of neurotic way to be, to sort of trying to ongoing, in an ongoing way to convince ourselves that we're all one, that it's all one, it's just all of us in it together. I mean, it's a nice thought, for sure. But it doesn't resolve the problem. Because the problem is that we're looking to an idea to save us. And the Buddha and others, you know, they point to a process, right? Clarifying, stabilizing awareness, present moment awareness, and then using that awareness to see things as they are, to turn back on this experience, this body-mind experience, and to be aware, to be intimate, and to use that connection, that ongoing present moment knowing of the body and the mind, to replace the mind's addiction to its storytelling. The meaning that our thoughts construct. Doesn't mean we can't think, doesn't mean we can't talk, it just means it's not the center, it's not kind of, it's never a very good foundation, but it's not sort of the grounding of our life. Thought is like a tool to use, especially when we're communicating with other people. That our psychic health, our spiritual, psychological health isn't dependent on concepts or ideas that we have about being good or being bad or any kind of that duality of our thoughts or even ideas of unity or whatever we might construct. So I'll come back to this article, but I encourage those of you who want to read something I find very good. Like I said at the beginning, I, f- I find Joko Back a very powerful teacher. There are two. She has two books, uh, Charlotte Joko Back. Joko was the name she got from one of her Zen teachers. I'm not sure which one gave her that name. But uh, she was a long time uh, head of the San Diego Zen Center um, before she died about five years ago. And we'll get that, for those of you who get the weekly email, where it says about these weekly practice groups. It will be, The link will be there. And then, Gabe, where are you going to put it on the website? These, on the blog? Yeah, sure. Yeah. so there's a link, I think, on the homepage to the blog, and there will be a link to this article when you go to... I think it's called the Dharma Blog. But for sure you can get to the blog under Resources, and then you'll see the link for Dharma Blog, and then it will be uh, up there probably by tomorrow. So you can check it out. But we have time for one comment. If somebody is inspired or question that somebody has, yeah, please say your name maybe. Hello?
0: My name is Barclay. Um I feel like I've been resisting my icy couch for thirty years.
1: Oh ah, well you're with all the rest of us.
0: <laughs> and I found that there's no escape. There's nowhere to go. There's no idea. There's no thought. There's no... All of those things will be added to your icy couch if you rest in them. And all that's left is to just embrace it or let it embrace you. Not to worry about enlightenment. Not to worry about...
1: Because enlightenment is always going to be an idea. Exactly.
0: If there's anything to enlightenment, it's right here, right now. Yeah. nowhere else.
1: Yeah, the integration is here or it's nowhere. Thanks, Mark. Now we have time for one more person. <laughs> yeah, Ruth. I was reminded of a quote by Leonard Cohen or kind of a little story that I think he was talking about relationships and maybe giving relationship advice or something, but he said, After a long time, you'll realize that nothing works. And I think that's just so profound because he said it in his really wholehearted kind of sardonic way that, you know, in the end, you'll just realize nothing works. And then that's okay. That's maybe when you'll really just relax into the relationship and be in the moment in the relationship because no tricks, no plans, no nothing works when it comes to anything. Yeah. Doesn't that, It sounds a little bit like a summation of the four stages of grief, which we could maybe call the four stages of learning to be with your icy couch. And we get to that place, right? We deny it. We hate it. We, but eventually, we make peace with the iciness of the couch or the messiness of life that nothing works. And that, if you see the word dukkha, which we use quite a bit because it gets badly translated as suffering... Suffering sounds not so good, but it's really what Ruth's pointing to in this comment about Leonard Cohen, that nothing works. That's actually a pretty good definition for Dukkha. <laughs> that life is unreliable, uncertain, ungovernable, that nothing works. Nothing is ultimately satisfying. Oh, it works. Huh? It works. It drives you. <laughs> yeah, if we let it. May it be so. If it breaks you. <laughs> Good. Let's leave it here. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ruth. Let's just take maybe a time enough for one or two breaths together, just appreciating the silence before we end, putting down the words. And ending by appreciating the courage that it takes to be interested in this life. So wishing everyone good practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website